thanks again, as always, for listening. I appreciate anybody who listens to even one episode, and I appreciate everyone who's listened to so many. You keep me going. I'm so excited to share that now official on Patreon. You can find my Patreon page, become a member. It's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Again, that's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My name, of course, is P-E-T-E-R-R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. You can become a member today. The page is officially launched. There are three tiers of membership. Official patron membership tier is $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to all interview episodes when they're published, mostly on Tuesdays with some published on Fridays. There are two to four interviews published each month. Lastly, you'll receive the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. That is the official patron tier of membership for $3 a month. There's the $5 a month for the all-access patron. With the all-access patron membership, you'll have access to all new interview episodes. Each month, like I said, there are two to four interview episodes. You'll get access to those as well as a monthly bonus episode or two that is an interview or an exploration of themes through two or three texts. One example would be an episode that I did called Righteous and Justified Anger that was explored through the works by Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison or The Power of Flashback was one episode which explored the endings of The Godfather Part 2 sleepers and that was then this is now with the all access patron membership you'll also receive a refrigerator magnet with the chills at will podcast logo and the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations literary event calendar and the chills at will podcast news you will get a shout out on a future episode too with the vip patron tier which is ten dollars a month you'll get access to all episodes a monthly newsletter with reading suggestions and a calendar of literary events and updates on the Chills at Will podcast, access to a monthly AMA, Ask Me Anything, and a t-shirt with the Chills at Will podcast logo. There are two to four monthly episodes and one or two bonus episodes, which are interviews or discussions of themes as seen through multiple texts. VIP patrons will also receive a special shout-out on a future episode. I encourage you to please join Patreon for the Chills at Will podcast. As I say all the time, this is truly a labor of love. This is truly a DIY operation. I started in April of 2020, and it has been an absolute pleasure. 99.999% fun. I've gotten to interview people like Disha Filia, what? Matt Bell. Brandon Hobson, Luis Alberto Orrea, Jean Guerrero, Gustavo Arellano, Taylor Bias, Gabby Bates, Alice Elliott Dark, Nadia Owusu, and so, so, so many more. Did I say Jess Walter? Did I say Jeff Perlman? Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Jamil John Cochai, Morgan Talty, Sadie Shore Parks. 
Rachel Yoder, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, Kirsten Chen, Sam Quinones, Ion Grillo, Raina Kelly, Zach Harper, Michael Torres, Tracy Cato Kirayama, S.J. Sindhu, Roberto Lovato, Todd Goldberg, Steph Cha, Noel Kassler, Reina Grande, James Tate Hill, Navdeep Dylan Singh, Nikisha Elise Williams, Mia St. John, Susan Muladi Daraj, Sarah Borjas, and the list goes on and on. Future episodes include conversations with Robert Jones Jr., with Allegra Hyde, with Justin Tinsley, Javier Zamora, Jose Antonio Vargas, Yasmin Ramirez, Kai Harris, Laura Worrell, so, so, so many cool people. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. What are you waiting for? See you over there. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 154 of the Chills at Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Ian McAllen. And here's a little bit about him. He's the author of Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American from Roman and Littlefield in April of this year, 2022. He is a writer, editor, and graphic designer living in Brooklyn. He's art director at The Rumpus, a contributor at America Domani and the Chicago Review of Books, and a member of the National Book Critics Circle. His writing has appeared in Chicago Review of Books, Southern Review of Books, The Offing, 45th Parallel Magazine, Little Fiction, Volume 1 Brooklyn, and elsewhere. He tweets at Ian McAllen, that's M-A-C-A-L-L-E-N, and is online at ianmcallen.com. Ian, thanks for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing great. It's good to be here. It's good to be here. And, and you know, looking at uh, at this book Whenever I first saw it online a long time ago, I was so excited, and I was just, like I was telling you before we recorded it, it exceeded my expectations. That'll be the main you know thing we'll talk about, of course, is red sauce. Let's do the thing that like Italians do, especially Italians like us who don't have Italian last names. Is like, have you noticed this? Like, it's like a comparison of like last names. Like, okay, cool. Like, how Italian is your last? Okay, what's your what's your mom's maiden name? Oh, of course, you need a lot right? of vowels. You need to right? have vowels at the beginning, in the middle, and the end. Okay? <laughs> Otherwise, people get look at you uh, look at you funny. So I'm, I'm a little I'm a little biased, but I always like the ones that end with e with the e. So so mine is Albanese or Albanese. Yeah. Um, right. So uh, my uh, grandfather was the Tulio. Oh, nice, uh, nice one. Um, and I believe that means uh, something having to do with the Greeks, uh, okay. which the Greeks had control of the far south of Italy for right. a period of time. 
Um, and so that's how that usually comes in into play. And uh, it's funny to see that name uh, pop up because, you know, there's only so many surnames from the village that he was from. Mm. Right. And so basically anyone in America who has that last name yeah. um, is probably some kind of distant cousin. And they probably have a relative that originated in uh, uh, Bagnoli. Um, uh-huh. You know, and so uh, I have cousins Masulo. Uh, okay who uh, are also from that village. So you see that name pop up and then you, then you start to see those names. Such populate. Thing, bring those yeah. last names. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, they, and those names pop, pop up in, in, in communities and you're like, Oh, well that town in America is where people yeah. from that village settled because you know, you, someone's a cousin along the sure, way. It could sure. be fifth or sixth removed, but you know, a town of a couple thousand people, how many, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I'm Sorry. so interested that my, uh, you know, my my Albanese, the, my grandparents' last name, Albanese, means a person from Albania, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So like you talk, you know, like obviously right across. So we're both we're both talking mainly from Molise, from uh, you know mm-hmm. the states that used to be Abruzzo and Molise together, kind of mm-hmm. southern, central, southern, right, east. Yeah, it's so, about Albania is right across Greece. You know, mm-hmm. it's further east, but it's about equidistant to um, Rome and Naples, right? Exactly. So exactly. Uh, how put it. Yeah. And my grandfather actually would talk about how uh, when he was, you know, 15, 16 years old, people would would ride bicycles from from town to mm-hmm. to Rome. And it would take a couple of days. You know, you oh, don't man. you didn't have a the A1 or A6, whatever goes through there now. Okay. And now there's we went there in 2000 uh, with my cousins. Oh, nice. We still had some some houses there. We saw that my grandfather showed us the house he grew up in. And I remember driving from Rome with them. First of all, tiny, tiny little Italian cars. Mm. Uh, little, there was yeah. like four or five of these uh, uh, of us, you know, all the cousins were coming up, um, squeezed five, five, six people into like a little Fiat. And, uh, and we're riding along the highway. First of all, like, you know, the, the mountains there are extremely high and then the, and then you have these valleys. So we come up to the, the essentially it looks like a Roman aqueduct, but it's just mm. a freeway. Right. And, uh, we're about to cross from one mountain to the other, and then we get off, and we go all the way down the mountain, across the valley. We cross the little river that the bridge is going over. You know, the the, the freeway is much higher up. You know, two hundred feet in the air, and we're just on this little rinky dink bridge. And we go all the way back up the the other mountain because there was no exit uh, for the Ooh. the other mountainside, so we had to get off early and then and then cross. And I do remember that. And then we <laughs> drive up to the peak, and the town is basically perched on the top of this mountainside right um and with the the local church is at the very top and then there's a couple rows of of um stepped uh terraced streets that are built into the uh, side of that mountain and then um my grandfather's house and his cousins had houses along what would be like sort of the lowest of the you know the terraces so their backyard um which was essentially like a very very steep vertical cliff um had you know you were just like the last row of houses then you had a field or you know a rocky you know outcrop that was sort of a field which is you know sort of the problem right is why so many people in southern italy left is you know you're growing food in in rocky soil and and uh the land was not particularly fertile so yeah oh that's so cool you you talk a lot in the book about authenticity and you got the authentic Mm -hmm. italian experience right yeah, I, well, so to me, like part of that is like, what is authenticity, right? Like, 
uh, in, in a way to me, red sauce, like what we think of as Italian American food is authentic. It is just not authentically Italian. It's authentically Italian American. Right. right. And, and what I said this on, on an interview before is that the, whatever you're eating, that is authentic. Right. If, yeah. if I walk into a restaurant and what do I have on a Tuesday night? Right. That is really authentic. And that changes over time. Right. Like, you know, uh, Growing up, I would, you know, pizzeria takeout, you know, Chinese takeout. Um, maybe that maybe I had sushi by the time I was 15, right? That that was sort of authentically growing up in North Jersey, you know, uh, you know, bagels, pizza, Chinese takeout, maybe sushi, right? Okay. And and now I live in New York and it's you know 20, 30 years later. And what what do I have on a fairly regular basis? Well, I have Middle Eastern food, I have uh uh, thai food taiwanese food i have uh korean food uh i still have pizza i still have bagels uh but what what is my authenticity is well it's merging all those things this is a combination of of all that and you know they're all drawing inspiration from distant ethnicities mm-hmm. you know but at this point a lot a lot of people are whether they're italian or um from taiwan or or uh korea the third fourth generation you know um and and that to me is the fascinating part of modernity right you know and obviously i i love italian food and my my italian heritage but you know the fact that i'm essentially in what was an old italian neighborhood in brooklyn but all these other great cuisines are also here really Mm -hmm. speaks to the existence of like the american melting pot and uh, you know, and that influence is seen in pizzas, right? Like there's a mm-hmm. pizzeria, I don't know, a mile and a half, two miles away from me that is doing Caribbean toppings. Cool. Um, so oxtail and uh, shrimp. I think there was a jambalaya there the last time. Was there. Cool. All these different, um, different unique flavors on pizza, right? And so they're taking what is a New York tradition now, a New York style pizza and adding their... Um, their own taste and 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 it, hmm. that oxtail was incredible i will say yeah. so <laughs> i bet a lot of the, so much of the book uh especially a lot of the like the discussions of authenticity you know in quotes reminds me um great book if you haven't read it um gustavo ariano wrote about taco usa oh uh you know what i yes i right? i have literally it is the next book uh for me to read i just read nice. a different taco book by um Ruff, Rafael, Rafael, I'm mispronouncing his name. Uh, also about American tacos. I think his was yeah. called American Tacos, and there's Taco USA. I think and I, yeah. yeah, and then I have a third book, which is even a deeper history. It's more academic um, that I'm looking into. So I'm, uh-huh. I'm, I've been reading about tacos, if that wasn't yeah. clear. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited about that. And that, that one, I, um, the American Taco book I was reading, mm-hmm. does talk about um, the fusion of all these. So. Uh, the Korean tacos coming out of California, mm-hmm. um, the evolution of the Texas tacos for breakfast right. tacos. Right. Um, and I thought that was a really fascinating look about how, you know, a different kind of cuisine is, is merging with, with the influences of, of different ethnic groups. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, you know, last night I went to the store, I was, I was thinking of, you have know, some kind of taco or fajita. And, and then I was like, well, you know, what if I like, change it up a little bit and i i did a korean inspired taco mm. and and later today i have a leftover slice of pizza um 
from the, the day before that. And I have some leftover Korean pork that I made. And mm-hmm. I'm going to make a Korean pork taco pizza. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, and that will be that will be my lunch. Just taking those flavors and merging them together. And, and yeah, we'll we'll see how it goes. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be. That sounds like. actually really good. That sounds really good. Well, yeah, like, you know, Gustavo, like he, he got, I wouldn't say he got his start or got some of his mo- most notoriety through a column that was, you know, really tongue in cheek satire called Ask a Mexican, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, based out of Orange County originally, and then it became national. And so he was kind of seen as like this, you know, spokesperson for many Mexican Americans. Mm-hmm. And so, and he knows his food extremely well, but like, you know, it's, it's hard to sum up his point because he has so many interesting points, but it's like, He's basically saying, you know, like, I mean, what does authenticity really even mean? Like, if it's mm-hmm. good, it's good. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely oversimplifying. But if it's good, it's good, you know. And he, he's done a lot, like, in the South, you know, with, with Mexican mm-hmm. food there. Some of it, you know, quote-unquote authentic, some of it not. He's like, take a chill, you know, relax on this whole authenticity thing. What does that even mean? One of the most common tacos in Brooklyn is the El Pastor. And I, I believe I was just going to that there. the Lebanese yeah. immigrants a hundred years yep. ago, a, drawing on the mixing up, mm-hmm. yeah, mixing together the the Mexican and Lebanese traditions, created that El Pastor. And now there's probably not a taco shop in Brooklyn where you can't get, you know, an El Pastor, which passes off as a Mexican food, right? Because mm. you know, uh, in my research, my my understanding is the um, New York's Mexican population grew very rapidly in the 1990s and 2000s, which is actually when we had a lot of taco shops opening up. And I know Californians and Texans love to talk about how their tacos are great, but <laughs> I will come to the defense of New York's tacos. We we do a pretty good job now. I have a lot of interesting things going on. Totally gotcha. love the effusion. Yeah. I gotcha. Let's go back a little bit. Congrats on the book. We talked about mm-hmm. where to go online to find your info and to, to buy the mm-hmm. book. Have you always been a reader and a writer? I'd love to know what you were reading and, and yeah. possibly writing growing up. So uh, as a kid, I read a bunch of John Grisham, um, oh, yeah. which pr- some of it was probably not age appropriate. Um, <laughs> you know, Michael Crichton too. Uh, you know, so like sort of pulpier mass market books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the aughts, the 2000s, I was, you know, I've been writing fiction for a while. I have some short stories that are out, you know, not a whole lot um, of of novels you know no one no one has published a novel of mine okay. uh yet, yet plenty of querying no no publishing and obviously i le- read a lot of novels overall a lot of what i review online or in, in book reviews typically are short story collections or literary novels okay. but i also for many years love singular topic food books so like you know you would maybe mark linsky's uh, salt or uh, cod are a really good example of that the sort of genre creating uh, author there right um and so i read a lot of food books uh butter cheese uh i read a hamburger book um you know all, all a whole bunch of those different kinds of stories and a lot of them they're they're different ways of approaching it um uh, you know like cod and salt are really looking at the history of those kinds of foods but also like the implications and a broader history but then there's also like um with like cheese for instance which i just or cheddar i'm sorry cheddar was Mm. was the book i had just read where you're looking at the actual food and less about the history and how how the implications of that and so you know having read a lot of almost what i would describe as biographies of a food right like um you know it got me thinking about 
you know, Italian American food. And, and, and there were some, there's a great book um, by John Mariani uh, called um, how uh, Italian food conquered the world, I believe it is. And, um, and that's a, about a decade old. And I did read that, but the way he approaches Italian food is all Italian food in the world is sort of derived from the singular uh, tradition of Italy. And so Italian American food, he recognizes as a separate kind of cuisine, yeah. but, but is part in, in his sort of narrative, part of the broader Italianness that has spread across the world. And so he talks about Italian food in the rest of Europe, Italian food in America, uh, Italian food in South America. Um, whereas I was, I was really approaching it as like, uh, this is a separate cuisine. Red sauce, Italian American food is specifically a, a separate cuisine. It, it should be respected as its own thing. And then in addition to that, really trying to find where did these things come from? Who, who or what invented them? How did they arrive in the United States? How did they become nationalized in a way? Like, um, and so I, this is actually, I think, a worthwhile distinction is there are definitely uh, foods local to a particular place that I didn't necessarily talk about in a, in a broad way, in part because I was really thinking of it is if I went into a, a red sauce joint in Minneapolis or Boston or you know Virginia or California, what foods would I find on that menu in every one of those places? Mm -hmm. Even if there's a slight um, difference in the way it's prepared, I can find a chicken parm or veal parm in any red sauce pizzeria in America, right? Um, same with penne alla vodka, just about. You know, I don't, I don't think, you know, I think if I said to uh, the waiter, I'm like, I don't see it on the menu. I really like it. Do you, do you have vodka? Can you make a, a penne alla vodka? They probably would figure it out if, yeah. if I, you know, um, whereas like some of the other smaller dishes tended to be more regional um, that, you know, that I ended up cutting or not talking about. And, um, and I thought that was an important distinction too, is in the broader narrative of, of how how do Italian Americans get um, integrated into sort of mainstream American society? It was really about those sort of like broader trends. So if I if I didn't talk about someone's favorite recipe, I, I apologize, but it was yeah. probably because it's very local to what they were doing. Yeah, that's interesting what you talked about that it could be said for a lot of cultures if not all like where it's just kind of a general like pan italian menu mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. many places right um i don't you know we talk about molise and our families from there i don't necessarily know a lot of the food i grew up with i think i think maybe alio olio is is kind of around from that area. yeah and it's the only one but well and and as we talked about is because it was part of Abruzzo at one point. And actually, I think a little bit of it was actually part of Campania, maybe. I'm, I'm, maybe. I'm, I'm, okay. Yeah. And I don't know exactly how they cut that up. Yeah. You know, I think it was in the late 50s that they did that. You know, some of the historical elements of it are more difficult to trace because they refer to it as Abruzzo, mm -hmm. right? And uh, so individually, uh, you're like, well, you know, was it? part of like a regional Molise tradition yeah. or was it more yeah. of a Abruzzo thing? And um and then there's some there's some that are very like um Grigia, Matriciana, mm. um 
and uh, in the, that sort of family of of sauces, right? Mm. There is a sentimental attachment, right? So Amatrice is sentimentally attached to Amatriciana. Mm. Well, is that Roman? Is it from Amatrice? Is it from the La greater Lazio region? Right. Um, and then on top of that, there is in Abruzzo, there's another community that claims some, I think it was one of the original Regia concoctions uh, or variations of that. And so all of these different places are claiming very similar things. And I think the other important element to recognize is just because we call something a thing now, right? Just mm -hmm. because Carbonara is a really great example of that, right? Mm -hmm. We we all could identify a Carbonara as it has egg in it. It has, which creates that creaminess. Um, some of it, some recipes, particularly in America, have actual cream, although Italian recipes typically don't. Um, you have pancetta or bacon, um, and it's mixed in pasta with cheese and, and, and pepper, right? So that combination, we refer to a Carbonara, it kind of only materialized in Italy in the post-war period as Carbonara. But there are versions of that that exist that are not called Carbonara before the war in the 19th century. And frankly, like probably the combination of those ingredients, uh, it's not like tomatoes, which aren't originally from Italy, right? So cured pork, something that's been around for thousands of years. Hard cheese, been around for thousands of years. Black pepper, more difficult to come by, but, you know, people were importing it. Um, and the final thing, eggs, like, you know, every bird in the country lays some kind of egg, right? So mixing those things together with your pasta, all you really need to do is invent the pasta, right? You've mm -hmm. had those other things for a long time. Yeah. And so I think you probably had people making some variation of that for a, for a long time. Um, yeah. yeah. And then and, you know, the reverse of that is when you come across... Uh, a dish that has um, many different preparations, the same name, but many different preparations depending on where you are, right? So even like even marinara, which today in America is typically is just like a thin red sauce. Mm -hmm. There are many different variations of that some with fish, some without fish, some that's more like a puttanesca, um, depending on where you were and what region you were from. Mm -hmm. um, the standardization of that in America, particularly, I think probably owes a lot to sort of the nationalization of foods like uh, pizzerias, right? Like where you have these sort of set menus from the red sauce cuisine mm. that you then have to come up with a term to that is interchangeable for everyone to know. Um, and then, and even early, early um, American versions of marinara sometimes would be referred to as marinari. Uh, mm -hmm. right, just like misspellings that like are published in newspapers and cookbooks and, and things like that. And it's a little confusing. And then you realize, oh, no, they just mean like a thin red tomato sauce. Yeah. So, yeah, like think of like what my grandpa, my grandpa's was both parents are from Molise. Mm -hmm. I think of like, you know, maybe, you know, what he liked. And I don't necessarily know if they were regional to where he's from. But, you know, like in the book, you talk about like, like Valentino, had, you know, mm -hmm. the famous actor, he has the, uh, the two recipes, right? Yeah. Meant to be kept separate or, you know, yeah. and, you know, spaghetti and meatballs are, you know, as American as, as apple pie. But I, so my grandma was, has, um, one parent was from Luca up in Tuscany mm -hmm. and one's, one's Calabrese from Calabria. And so I was, I was like, okay, that's cool because, you know, she definitely would make the meatball, like you talk, right, talking about the book, mm -hmm. separate. It was mm -hmm. its own mm -hmm. meal. I've started making those more recently. You know, they're bigger. Mm -hmm. She used to do them in the in the green pepper and the bell pepper, mm -hmm. you know. But it's just like, yeah, that's that was the way it was done in their region, and it was not part of the spaghetti necessarily. Yeah, my um, 
my the other half of my mother's family was from the Naples area. Yeah. And you know, and so Neapolitan ragu is really one of the most like probably the largest influence on the way Americans think of right. tomato no sauce, doubt. right? It's no just doubt. it's a big pot of tomatoes with maybe some meat involved in it, right? Mm. And but that meat can vary depending on who you are, what day of the week it is, and, and so on. And so my my grandmother apparently would make um a a Neapolitan ragu with veal shank, sometimes sausages, sometimes meatballs, but always would separate the two. The sauce would then go over the pasta. The meat would be plated separately. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and I I really I think it's really fascinating is <clears throat> even in the early English cookbooks that are of Italian food, right? It's like essentially either translations or a compilation of um Italian recipes that are then translated into English. Mm-hmm. They talk about the sort of very formal Italian style of the the starter, the the first course, which is a pasta yep. or a rice, mm-hmm. and then the the entree, what we would call the entree, the the meat part. And so, to me, my, you know, I, I didn't grow up in the 1900s, so I don't really know. But I, the fact that it's included in so many of those books, to me, indicates that people were holding on to that tradition even if they were poor, right? So they would find a way of, of mimicking that uh, formality. Yeah. But I suspect what essentially happened in America as we moved to a restaurant culture, right? And this is what happened in the 1910s and 1920s when meatballs first come about is Italian immigrants go from uh, only serving restaurants for uh, you know the enclaves that they were in to right. trying to attract a broader audience, right? Um, I suspect part of that was you know, merging the pasta and the meat course um, in a way to both expedite dining, right? So you, you, but also to make it more casual, right? So it's more accessible for everyone. Yeah, and so all those things I think combine into having spaghetti with meatballs on top, right? It's just like a, an easier way of consuming that. And then the, you know, the other element of that is spaghetti was like a hugely popular shape um, in the early 20th century, right? In a way, Spaghetti was synonymous with pasta for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, no doubt. You know, uh, yeah. So yeah. I think all those things combine into, into create this very iconic American uh, meal. Although this is the final element of this is there almost every Italian American dish, you might find an example of something that looks like or mimics that in, in a very localized way in Italy. So there actually is a couple places that will serve little tiny polpatini meatballs. My grandma called them, yeah. It integrated with with a pasta and a tomato sauce. Like, so it looks not all that different. The the meatballs themselves are a little bit smaller, which Mm -hmm. let me tell you is not not easy to make little meatballs. I much prefer a larger meatball (laughs) because it goes faster. But but to say, oh, that is definitely where spaghetti meatballs in America comes from. Well, no, not really. Like that was one little community. You don't, Yes, some of those people might have come to America during the great wave of immigration, but like were were those 10 people responsible for making mm-hmm. spaghetti meatballs a national dish? Probably not. It was probably more the the macaroni advertisement that says you should combine your spaghetti and your meatballs and mm-hmm. it was probably more chef Bardi who was like here's mm-hmm. your spaghetti with little meatballs, right? Yeah. And and so a lot of what we think of as cultures actually have been created by advertisements and, and marketing. I mean, even the idea of Italian food um, for these immigrant communities in the early 20th century was created by marketing, right? You were you were trying to uh, 
uh, sell the idea of Italy to people who had come from technically United Italy, but for most from, you know, Italy was united in what, 1861? And the great wave of immigration is beginning in the 1880s. So a lot of those people were really, they didn't think of themselves as Italian. They thought of themselves as, you know, I'm Neapolitan. I'm from this kingdom. I'm from yep. Lombardy or well, probably not Lombardy because that's in the north. But you know what I'm saying is they were they were individually these very tiny uh, communities that they associated with not Italianists. But marketing, it was easier to market to Italians rather than a small community. Right. No, no. Um, I mean, obviously, there there was there was definitely ethnic, you know, ethnic prejudice is that's too strong a word ethnic mm -hmm. you know violence ethnic inequality against immigrants southern italian immigrants etc mm -hmm. nowhere near the the area you know of asian american latinos mm -hmm. but you know i think a lot of like what you write about in the book you know like garlic was seen as like you know the italian <laughs> perfume and they used to say domaggio like you know put olive oil in his hair and yeah right you know, um, and I think they like, they right the time magazine <laughs> had a good quote about um domaggio when he was going off to war uh don't worry ladies he doesn't smell of garlic or something something yes. along those lines right right um yeah no i mean certainly the amazing thing is in the early 20th century italian cuisine italian american food was seen as was, foreign right was, was seen, as seen as foreign and, and and attacked right uh not not physically attacked but like government would go after it right so yeah. they were trying to indoctrinate italian american children in public schools by I don't want to say force feeding them, but like giving them lunches that were seen as more American. So white mm. bread and butter and, and, you know, things that were like very pale and didn't have any flavor of garlic. That and, was a great point. Uh, yeah. yeah. About the cleanliness as well, yeah. right? Showing cleanliness, mm -hmm. white bread yeah. versus, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's amazing at first, the government's sitting there trying to um, win the hearts and minds of Italians by reinventing their children's palettes, right? Mm. And then in the post-war period, those same kind of organizations, and I'm thinking specifically in New York City, where they had a very strong outreach program, that same organization is then using spaghetti, Italian spaghetti to mm. teach, um, teaching to Puerto Rican immigrants. And they're right. trying to, to indoctrinate a, in, in essentially in reverse and saying, look, this is a, an affordable meal. You should, you should eat it. The Italians mm. did it. And now they're American, you know, and that was sort of the <laughs> Um, sort of implication that was happening is the government was was at first don't eat spaghetti and then it was like it became a tool of the state essentially yes to, yes um, and propaganda that, right yeah and I think <laughs> I think it's like a really interesting uh, way of looking at it, especially when you um, in in contemporary times or, or you know you have friends who talk about their ethnic foods they would bring to lunch and how they were made fun of for whatever it was, right. whether whether it was a kimchi or you know uh, you know some of the other ethnicities that have come into America uh, in more recent times, mm -hmm. uh, and and they were made to feel bad about that ethnic food, and I'm sure in, in twenty or thirty years we have all those delicious foods as part of the exactly. the mainstay diet, you know, the American lexicon, the American mm -hmm. menu for sure. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, so we talked a lot. So towards the end, it really like of the book, you really focus on some of the individual, um, you know, the veal parmigiana, the mm -hmm. fraud, fraud diavolo, the lobster diavolo. Mm -hmm. um, towards the beginning, you know, I, you, 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 you hooked me right away. The there's the uh, opening with your mom you know, being the great cook and she's <laughs> talking spaghetti with your, I guess, kind of, with a quote unquote blue blood, your future. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. Her future mother-in-law and it's the whole yeah. throwing of the wall, throwing 
throwing spaghetti. the pasta against the wall, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So this this is a story that my mother has repeated many different ways over the years. <laughs> but basically, that her first time meeting her future mother in law was, um, let's make some pasta for the little Italian girl, and and you know, taking the the pasta out of the thing and throwing it against the wall. And my mother said, and my my grandmother then said to her. That's how you know it's done when it sticks, right? And then, and then my mother says, "No, we usually taste it." Right? <laughs> and um, so I, I assume it's, it's some variation of that is true. I've heard it <laughs> enough from my mother. Um, but yeah, and I, and I think that it, it's interesting is by that point that was the late '60s, early '70s. So there, at that point, Italian food is pretty well integrated into American right. Asian culture, and it, it's kind of a an ah an oddity. At that point, um, yeah. But um, you know, yeah. where the to me one of the sort of golden ages of red sauce is actually the 1950s and 1960s, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, you're you're at a point where you know uh, people went to Italy during the war, they came back. You have nationalization of things like lasagna. You can get the Stouffer's lasagna is introduced in the fifties, right? Mm -hmm. um, they had a whole line of casseroles, and the only one that was any any good was the lasagna, or, and <laughs> uh, which is saying a lot, given that it's not necessarily that great. Um, yeah, not to malign Stouffer's. Uh, I mean, actually, the podcast is sponsored by by Stouffer's, so can we erase? Yeah. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and then uh, and pizza really takes off of that period too, and. Um, what's really interesting in the 1950s is is seeing how Americans just did not they couldn't pronounce these things hmm. to the point where um, multiple issues of um, what I describe as women's magazines I was able to find them in the New York Public Library under the there's a, a database of what they call women's magazines microfiche um, no so I, <laughs> the beauty of the digital age is, yeah, is yeah, yeah. digitization um, you know. It, this project would have been impossible on microfiche because you would mm. had I would have been going to libraries around the country and still not finding all the right was right. Um, but in the magazines they have pronunciation guides for pizza and lasagna. Oh wow! And then they also describe how you should have it. So there's one uh, there was a pizza party right. I think it was like a uh, a teenager magazine like you early seventeen or one of okay. those um, targeting uh, teen girls. It's like this is how you have a pizza party. You know you like you can make it right. You know. They had assembly instructions how to make sauce, but they, you know, it included this is how you pronounce this weird word. Huh. Um, but you know, it, it also dovetailed, I think, really nicely with a movement in the 1950s towards convenience, right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the whole, and this is actually where my my blue blooded grandmother probably benefited is open a can and dump dump a food into <laughs> a bowl and you have a meal, right? Um, and she, the Irish side did not cook uh, a, a whole lot, right? Um, <laughs> And uh, so pizza is a takeout food, right? It, it, what a great concept. You, you drive up you, in your car. You know, people in the 50s loved, loved their cars. They drive, drive, drive to yeah, the pizzeria, yeah. pick up the pizza and, and drive it home. And now you have a, a, a whole meal for however much a, a pizza cost back then. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I think one of the great Italian-American heroes who I don't even think he's Italian <laughs> was this guy, Ira Nevin. From Westchester County, New York, he was um, the son of uh, bricklayers. Essentially, they were people mm. who made um, uh, ovens, and then but he was an aeronautical engineer, and so he goes into the military. He has his background in building ovens. He has his background in aeronautical engineering. 
he eats some pizza while he's in Italy. He comes back and is like, let me invent the gas fired uh, pizza mm. oven. And this is a revolution. So in, in America, between 1910 and, and the war, um, if you wanted a pizza, well, first of all, you probably didn't know you did want it because it was only localized in a few Italian-American neighborhoods sure. um, in New Haven and New York and, and Trenton. Um, the only way to do that was it was a coal-fired oven, basically. Maybe you had some wood ovens, but coal was cheaper in the United States. And it was this big bread oven that you got hot with coal, you put your pizza in, and two minutes later, you had a pizza. The problem is with a pizza oven like that is if you ever let it get cold, and I mean truly cold where there's no embers at all, it can take a day or two to get hot again, right? Oh. It can get it, 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 the the moisture that that um, the condensation that forms as it cools can be a problem. So what you need to be doing is you need to have a fire in there every day. Mm. And so that is its own challenge to maintain sure. and then it's and then at the same time you're shoveling constantly shoveling coal or wood into the into the oven that's very labor intensive so iron evans gas fired oven the pizza oven changes the the ability to basically buy the machine put it in the back of a, of a commercial kitchen and mm. turn out pizzas right mm. and now you're, you're not necessarily going to be doing it quite as quickly as a coal coal oven it still gets very hot yeah um but that that's when you really see the ability for um for pizzerias just to become on every street corner yeah. and certainly certainly new york by the you know the 70s you have rays and famous rays and all the mm. other rays pizzas mm. and um and then the 50s and 60s you start getting um uh bars essentially are starting to open up with pizzerias and this is how you get detroit style pizza this is how yeah. you get deep dish pizza this is how you get Domino's and pizza hut and um Papa John's a little bit later. Uh, little Caesars is the other the other big one from the fifties. Oh, yeah, right, These right, are right. all Midwestern chains that um, I guess not all of them started in bars, but a lot of them just were mm. a guy who sort of knew someone who maybe had an Italian relative who could give him a recipe for a base of pizza, and you know a lot of them had had it in 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 Italy during the war or um, in New York when they were transitioning through um, mm. on their way to Europe and. Um, yeah, so that this is, this is all because of the gas-fired oven, basically. Yeah. You, you would not have pizza every. You would not have a pizza hut on every corner if they were shoveling coal into the oven to keep it hot, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, so you know, pizza huts on every corner. The the first chapter again, you you hooked me. You have the the great scene with uh, talking about the Sopranos, oh. <laughs> uh, right? So we got yeah. uh, Polly Walnuts and and Big Pussy at the coffee shop, and it's yep. like, you know Polly just gesticulating everywhere and bemoaning all the exploitation <laughs> and you know they're making all this money off us and espresso yeah. and cappuccino you have that great cut to the trip to italy it's a, i think i mean it's a different episode yeah but uh, he's like right season yeah but he's, he's like jersey shore italian right where mm-hmm, he like when mm-hmm. they went over to italy and they spoke like you know he he spoke like it's like a very antiquated couple words Mm-hmm. He asked for like, you know, spaghetti and gravy, macaroni and gravy. And they're like, what yep. are you talking about? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, gravy is a really interesting lexicon oh, yeah. element. Right. So um, of worms a, right there. a lot of people, basically the first question at literally every event is, I used to call it gravy. Why don't you call it red gravy or, or gravy? Uh-huh. And um, which is a, a valid question in some respects in that you can translate ragu to gravy right okay um you also have salsa right in italian you also have um sugo uh, uh, Mm -hmm. i'm probably mispronouncing that 
Um, and so these are all variations of the idea of sauce, a, a sauce for your, your mm. meat or your, your pasta. Now, um, where you came from in Italy and then where you settled in America determined your use of that word. So right. some people call it all gravy. Some people call it all sauce. Mm. But within that, you also have uh, gravy or Sunday sauce, which would refer yeah. to specifically what you make on Sunday filled with meat. Right. And then sauce would come to mean anything that didn't have meat, which would be more typical on your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday kind of meals. Okay. Um, but the Sunday sauce, the gravy was really like all of your Italian relatives, which, you know, is the first generation was everyone who lives in your apartment building and everyone who lives on your block is related to you. And they're all coming over for Sunday dinner. Right. And so what do you do? You're going to put all this meat into a big red sauce. You're going to let it cook for a couple hours and, and then you serve it. And, uh, and that's gravy or sauce or Sunday sauce for a lot of people yeah. um, with these variations. And, and, you know, and then, going back to what you're saying about the Sopranos, this is what Paulie Walnuts is asking for in Naples is he wants, he wants gravy. And the guy was like, Oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about because you know, no one in Italy would you like the translation from ragu to gravy. And then back is a little bit more difficult of a leap, right? It's like when you put a phrase into Google translate and you go through a bunch of languages and you yeah. come up with a totally different telephone game, um and, and so that's what he he's sort of reacting to and i think that is that is something younger people um don't necessarily have anymore right mm. we, we live in an age where jet travel is very easy where a lot of people go to italy they, and if they haven't been to italy they've probably watched food food network yeah and um they watched stanley have, tucci or something right yeah uh, oh absolutely stanley tucci is a great example of that he he's is. um you know, touring through some of the most beautiful uh, piece, parts of the world um, of Italy right there and, and talking about that food that isn't necessarily recognizable or is like a distant shadow of what we grew up with. Yeah. Um, and actually, so I have, I've just read his memoir and he talks about that in, um, like I said, in growing up, his, his ethnic food that he would bring to school he oh. always wanted to trade it as a kid for a fluff nutter sandwich right oh, because yeah right and but you know the you know this is the sort of challenge of of a very ethnically italian american is is your children want the fluff nutter sandwich right um and now that we're in a, in a period where we're two or three generations removed from that yep. um you you have a different interpretation of of and different expectation of what you're going to eat yeah. No doubt about it. After the that part, you you transition into you know really interesting. Like it really does encapsulate basically your book is like the story of like Olive Garden and like was it Starboard mm -hmm. is like the consulting. Oh firm. yeah, so there's this um. This is a really fascinating thing that was 10, 10 years ago ish, where a venture capital firm was trying to oust the uh, ownership control, the conglomerate that owned Olive Garden. So they had some other restaurants in there too. But they, uh, you know, as happens with a hostile takeover, they were trying to make an argument that they would be a better uh, management company for. Um, that the conglomerate and one of their big targets was how badly Olive Garden was managed. And so in this PowerPoint, they 
outline all the mistakes that are happening in the Olive Garden, not putting salt water in the pasta, mm, in, mm, yeah, mm, or mm. not putting salt in the pasta water uh, is one example. Tisk. Yeah, but then they they also like to use the term authenticity. Sure. And this is to me part of it is they were talking about we want Olive Garden to be more authentic. Right. But then they propose a bunch of dishes that have literally nothing to do with with Italian food or modern Italian food, including a vegetarian bolognese sauce. Right. Which mm. sounds great, but it's not it's like an oxymoron, bolognese sauce. Right? Yeah, right? Yeah. Exactly. And um, so I use that as a jumping off point to talk about authenticity and what that means. But I think I'm not going to defend Olive Garden as good, but I <laughs> would defend it as um as some kind of American authenticity, right? This is truly American food in the worst possible way, perhaps. But, um, you know, uh, you know what you're getting into when you go to Olive Garden. Exactly. It's available everywhere in America. And in a way, it's brought Italian-American influence dishes to people who would never have had Italian-American food. And, and you could say this about any kind of chain and any kind of ethnicity. Is P.F. Chang's great Chinese food? I... Right. I've only been there once or twice, but you know, it is an interpretation of American food, mm -hmm. widely available everywhere in America, right? Yeah. And so maybe it's just a good interpretation of American food, which I think is maybe also fine to say about Olive Garden. You know, we're never going to be able to replicate true Italian food in America because just the basic quality of food is going to be different right they mm -hmm. have rules and regulations that are part of the eu that dictate what you're allowed to put into milk and cheese and and, sure. and fruits and vegetables and we have a different set of regulations and and we can argue all day about what is the correct way of approaching that but it's simply going to be a different system one way or the other and then i also i i typically take issue with uh, so there's uh the uh, true pizza association i forget the exact it's avp and it's yeah. the uh, neapolitan pizza association that, right. that gives uh certificates of uh, authenticity to pizzerias right it's uh you can buy into the system but it's basically saying these are the authentically neapolitan pizzas so there's a margarita and then there's two other uh variations of that that technically qualify yeah so the the big thing that they do with that is they require you to use um san marzano tomatoes from San Marzano area, but they have to be certified. So uh, you can't just get tomatoes grown in that area that are San Marzano's. They have to literally be certified. Hmm. But you also must be using um, uh, buffalo mozzarella cheese right. that is from Italy. So the the at the the first thing that's happening here, if you're in New York, there's a couple of the certified pizzerias. If you're making the um, margarita pizza, you're bringing in canned San Marzano tomatoes and you're flying Buffalo mozzarella halfway around the world just to qualify. Right. Hmm. But that's not, that's not the ethos of Italian, of authentic Italian sure. food. The ethos of Italian food is what, what Local, do you get in the market? Right? You mm -hmm. walk into the market and some guy picked the vegetables and produce in the field that afternoon and you, or that morning and you bought it that afternoon and you made dinner with it. Right. You're not flying mm -hmm. it around the world. And I think to me, that is, is one of the, the conflicts here right yeah like if you want authentic italian food go to italy if you want <laughs> if you want authentic italian american food you're here you're you know eat it here sure. um and so I, I think it's it's incorrect to sort of lean really heavily on the idea of authenticity yeah. i think maybe a, a, a better term if you're like i want a uh, contemporary flavors from italy is to say a modern italian restaurant yes. 
because you know it's the age we live in and this is the other thing food is constantly changing and evolving right you know and i think this is the narrative that i tell in red sauce is right the the italian american recipes in 1905 1910 they're not what you eat at a red sauce joint today. The mm-hmm. penne alla vodka was not invented until the 60s, right? right. But it's everywhere now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, pasta and, primavera, and, right? Yeah. Well, and so pasta primavera is a, my my favorite example. And to me, the the indicator of the end of the red sauce era, because mm. it's a, an Italianized dish invented at, in Long Island or on Long Island. Like a French restaurant. For no? a French restaurant. Yeah. And then, and then, that that re- that recipe is incredible. That original recipe is two pages of ingredients, mm. right before you even get to the instructions, <laughs> and um, and pers- uh, was it Le Cirque Le Cirque that uh, introduced it, and it was an amazing um, dish at the time. But then rapidly replicated. I mean, I certainly remember in the early 1980s in the tri-state area, every Italian restaurant in America mm. or in that in that region yeah. had a primavera dish of some kind none of them were going to be the up to the original and certainly none of them were truly italian right so this is yeah. not not uh, you know uh the the term uh comes from the the painting not from you mm. know springtime right um and so yeah i i think that's like a really interesting the evolution of these things now does that yes. make pasta primavera not good no i think you can probably find great examples i think you have a lot of bad examples of it right you go to mm-hmm. your local corner pizzeria who didn't bother reading that two pages of 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 uh of ingredients and just threw in whatever frozen vegetables they had into <laughs> a, a cream sauce is probably not exactly uh going to be the best pasta primavera you've ever had exactly. and certainly you know the olive garden probably has a version i, I don't know if they do i i wouldn't you know they, they're famous for adulterating these things like their carbonara recipe right they've taken mm-hmm. Uh, or not, uh, I'm sorry, their Alfredo recipe, right? Yeah. Alfredo yeah. sauce is butter and cheese. It's a lot of butter and a lot of cheese and, you know, extra eggs in the pasta, but that that's the basic recipe from 120 years ago. Hmm. There's So there's an Olive Garden version where, uh, you know, I, it comes across because they, you know, they do promos. So they have their Olive Garden chef go on TV and they give you the <laughs> recipe, right? And this is where you find out how, how they make it. They add cream, they add milk. They add multiple kinds of cheese to, to increase the viscosity, right? And all of a sudden, that I mean, that's not Alfredo anymore. That's, no. you know, this, you know, uh, I don't know, a white sauce with cheese, right? Exactly. It's okay if you like it, but it's just, it's not, it's not the same. Mm-hmm. It's not, yeah. Yeah. The, you do, you know, talk about, you know, evolution and you do such a great job tracing the evolution of the Italian Americans, you know, like Mm -hmm. so many other ethnic groups with like you talk about, you know, kind of like exoticism and the Mm -hmm. garlic and the pungency and what is this stuff to, you know, World War Two and, you know, Boyardee and the canned foods, (laughs) some of the things you've already talked about. Right. And then what I thought was so interesting, too, was, you know, the idea of the cucina povera, the Mm -hmm. poor man's food, if you will, and the cucina ricci. When the Italians got here and started to get more wealth, you know, the immigrants, they were kind of like imitating their wealth. And that's, yeah. you know, one of the many, not not the only one of the many factors that led to, um, you know, like the red sauce culture. Mm-hmm. And then like the whole like, I don't know, cyclical or coming back to home plate type of thing with like in more recent years, like northern Italian now is considered kind of more authentic. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a, a weird evolution. And this is partly... Uh, a change in the in the immigration right. um, that happened after World War II. So, you know, after World War II, 
all of Italy is devastated. The North is particularly devastated because they were an industrial hub, mm. right? And and so, like most of Europe, industry was not doing well after the war because of all the bombing. If you were at war, you bombed industrial centers so you couldn't make munitions, right? Um, and so, uh, before the boom, which is the economic miracle of the, the 60s, I think it is, in Italy. Boom. El boom. Il boom, right? <laughs> um, you, you had... You had Italians who were starving and and who didn't have jobs, and a good way of you know solving that was to leave, um, which much in the same reason that Southern Italians left in the, yeah. in the from eighteen eighty to the Second World War is is searching for food and a better life. Um, that that it simply just shifted who was coming, right? Um, and, and not to say that Southern Italians weren't coming after the war, but uh, the the ratio of of Southern to a Northern kind of balance out a little bit more. Um, and actually the interesting thing is um, a number of people after the war came to America and then went back. And now right. in the early, in the early 19th or the early 20th century and late 19th century, a lot of Italians intended to come to America, make some money and come back. Most of them did not. Some of them did, but most of them did not. Sure. But the, but after the war, it was a lot more um, going back and forth. Um, and the, the, to me, the amazing thing today is, you go into a little Italy neighborhood and you're probably going to come across people who were born in Italy who are 20 or 30 years old, right? Um, doesn't doesn't matter necessarily where they came from in Italy, but if they're in a little Italy in, like New York or Baltimore and Boston, they're plugged into a community that is making red sauce. And a lot of them are making our, you know, a, a kitchen help or, or waiter, wait staff um, is a great job opportunity for a new immigrant right yeah, yeah it's uh um you know particularly if you're within an ethnic enclave you're hiring someone's cousin to come work at your your restaurant right um and so you have these people who are coming from northern italy or from central italy who are cooking traditional red sauce in these traditional red sauce joints hmm. in little italy's and they're essentially adding credibility to the red sauce, even <laughs> though it's probably something they had no idea how to cook before they got here. Yeah. And um, and I think it's actually, you know, there are a lot of immigrant groups who have um, that kind of network. You know, I think of um, Chinese restaurants in America where, um, you know, immigrants arrive in a Chinatown. There's uh, the Chinatown buses are a network of buses that were designed to connect both Chinatown communities in different places, but also to get, um, new immigrants to Chinese restaurants across all across America mm. to help facilitate, you know, uh, provide labor, but also to create uh, a community support. Right. But essentially, you're getting people who have no idea how to cook Chinese American food mm. uh, coming to these restaurants and then learning what American food is. And I think, you know, um, I, I believe it's Jennifer Aitley that talks about it in uh, Fortune Cookie Chronicles. The American uh, fortune cookie exported back to China. Yes. A, right. Yes. And, you know, and I feel like we actually do have that happening in America now. Right. Um, so Penny Alla Vodka, great example of this, is invented in New York, exported back to Italy in the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, it was a favorite. So Italy didn't really have a vodka culture until the 1960s and 1970s when vodka companies started introducing it to bars. Right. Um, but, you know, 70s, you know, discotheques were a big popular way of partying. Uh, Apparently, by the seventies, they started serving panni alla vodka or, or a, a vodka sauce over pasta in a lot of these discotheques. And many multiple people have told me 
uh, their experiences of doing that in the 70s and early 80s, where they would go clubbing and then Payal Vodka was on the menu was the, huh. the memory they have. Um, and so I think that it's fascinating is that we're, we're actually inspiring or changing Italian cuisine by exporting the, these Italian American dishes yeah. to them. And then, you know, and then you also have like American food, right? Um, a good example is uh, Lydia Basanovich, who, you know, has a restaurant empire in America and, mm-hmm. and a cooking show on, I think, PBS um, and many, many cookbooks about Italian food. Um, and she is from the North. She's from a region of Italy that's not always been part of Italy even. Right, exactly. Right. And uh, and so she was probably instrumental in uh, in introducing Americans to like um, a lot of uh, nor- northern what we helping us understand a northern cuisine, uh, as well as Marcello Hazan, who yeah. also very famously uh, not from the south. But um, her Lydia's restaurant, there's a restaurant that she has in in Italy that serves Americanized food. Right. And so she's exporting things like cheeseburgers to italians um and and that i think is a really great uh you know the the back and forth right where yes you know so just just as long as you don't mix seafood and cheese italians will be okay well but then you have shrimp shrimp parm right i know i know you have to have shrimp parm during lent yes 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 (laughs) the um you know i mean arguably like kind of like the the thesis of the book is um and man, you're a heck of a writer. This is straight from your words. Quote, red sauce is a distinct cuisine invented through the confluence of Italian immigration, the bounty of the expanding American economy, and the unique cultural interactions between disparate ethnic groups in early 20th century American cities. It is also the story of impoverished peasants improvising and reinventing to imitate lifestyles they could have only dreamed of in their native country. And in the process, they create the, these beloved foods while integrating into mainstream society. This is the story of red sauce. And we need like somebody with like a deep, deep baritone <laughs> voice for that. But, but, you know, like, I mean, some of the things we've talked about and you talk about in the book, like they could be interchangeable for any culture, but mm-hmm. I just think, you know, you make some really strong points that you've talked about, like, you know, the bounty, that difference between yeah. like, you know, meet once a week or once a month and, you know, have it every day. The and then, and then, of, go ahead. Well, in the 19th century and even in the probably early 20th century, most of the times who came here, Mm-hmm. If they if they had meat um, once a year, that was a big deal. Right now, now I'm I would say I think in that statement there are certain meats that they have more access to that we don't think about, like rabbit. So, like my grandfather, for instance, raised rabbits and ate rabbit pretty regularly. Oh, I and had some rabbit in Italy, I had some rabbit in, in Tuscany, Luca. A, it was so good. It's a great meat. We should be uh, eating more of it. It's very lean. It's very much like a, a red meat. Um, but essentially, though, if you know, if you're talking about beef and you're talking about pork, like meat, you know, big M meat, mm-hmm. um, those things were much more readily available in the United States. Um, and 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 people had never really had access to it on, on a large scale. If they did, it was maybe as sausages. It was, uh, and then with sausages, you can squeeze in a bunch of other stuff in there, right? Mm. You can have cheaper fillers. You can use organ meats. In a, the breadcrumbs in was way, a great point too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right? Breadcrumbs extended everything. You know, you could... Uh, toss breadcrumbs on pasta, carb on carb, breadcrumbs on pasta, right? Yeah. It makes it a heartier meal, which is actually, they're they're delicious. They a little salt, a little, um, and if you do it right when you serve, you're you're, um, you're creating a little texture there. Um, also, you put salt, uh, put it in sauce, breadcrumbs in sauce, because that mm. would increase the volume, 
you're also a great way to not waste old day old bread or two day old bread. Right. Yeah. And you know, this is, I think a fascinating thing is, is with like a veal parm is bread and fried, right. You know, another way of using up those Hmm. day old bread. Yeah. But you know, to the larger point of like, how do they come up, concoct these ideas is most people who were immigrating before 1920 were people who had never eaten in a restaurant, right? They, they might have had, you know, like a, a f- equivalent of a food truck, right? Sure. Uh, and actually, technically, I guess in Naples, they had uh, uh, the mobile pizza truck was actually, yeah. thing. you got little guys pushing around carts with, with pizzas in it. But, you know, for the most part, you didn't eat at a formal restaurant at all. Um, you cooked what you had at home. And, and so suddenly you have money to spend and you're like, oh, like, what what should I make? What what does this look like? And, and you know, definitely. Oh, and then the other thing is, uh, if you don't have a literate population, it's very hard to pass down recipes mm. um, that way as well, because you need to be able to read. Um, and they, that changes over time. You know, uh, fascist Italy in the 1920s and 30s was pushing a lot of things like literacy, Italian as a national language, which is another challenging element in, in 1880 is what if you had a cookbook what language would it be in would it be in dialect would it be in in italian would it be in in spanish right you know mm. parts of italy had had just been ruled by spain um you know german another one in, in the mm. northern end yeah so uh just the idea of like who's who what language would you even be reading and even if you could read and who would be publishing those books is, is, a, is a challenge until much later, um, which is, you know, in, in the 1950s, we get um, some really uh, iconic books. And then even uh, Pellegrino Artuzzi has a very iconic book in the 19th century, um, The uh, Art and Science of Eating Well. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. And, and that is a really great example of like combining a lot of these recipes one of the early english cookbooks is actually just like a knockoff translation of of his book um and that's the other thing you start seeing is is books that get translated into english um in the 20th century you start having the the injection of italian american uh recipes which is really fascinating so like uh one out book one of the early translations um which it's probably due for a modern translation, as far as I can tell. Um, Get on it. But, yeah, <laughs> I'm not that good enough of a translation. <laughs> a little more Duolingo. Yeah, but the uh, the um, the the versions I could find from the 1950s have Italian American recipes in it, right? Uh, spaghetti and meatballs, for instance. And then a, another thing that happens in in these kind of cookbooks is uh, the decision by the editor or 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 author to um, anglicize the name of a dish or to keep it as, as an Italianized name with, with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the ingredients in English, obviously. And then, you know, why, why was that decision made? And that, that was one, you know, it's probably a whole another book about, you know, lexicon yeah. of, of cookbooks, but, um, you know, that begins to change over time too, is so they become first very English focused. And then you start reverting back to sort of like, uh, Melazuna for eggplant and, you know, like, uh, you know, using those, those kinds of terms. So, huh. Well, congrats. You published a book. It has your name on it. Congrats on a book that, yeah, you know, you add into, added to food studies, added to the cultural studies, you know, discussion, so many interesting stories, you know, the, the Pickfords, the Hollywood 
connection, you know, <laughs> World War II, um, like we talk about like that cyclical thing of like of authenticity and you know, mm-hmm. that Olive Garden story really just is is so it's such a microcosm of, you know, who's who's saying what's authentic and not and what does that yep. mean and you know, that changing that slippery slope. What, any you know any Brooklyn any local places we should buy the book any you know online any recommendations you might have. So uh, the in uh, on Cape Cod in the uh, East End Books, uh, I did an event there over the summer. I think they had a couple books left on hand. Uh, if not, I believe it's still available at Bookshop.org. There is an Italian American bookshop in in Boston called I Am Books that mm-hmm. regularly has it available. Uh, that's a great shop. They um. They opened a, a while ago, but they have a new location. It's about a year old. Um, the the owner came from Italy and uh, just decided to open an Italian American bookshop. They do a lot of events, uh, and you know, they they featured my book in their uh, yeah. in their advertisements before and on their Twitter. So I'm always happy to send people there. Yeah, so it very cool. And you can always order it from your your local bookseller uh if if they don't have it in stock and and that would be great too and a lot of public libraries have it too so um very cool it's um you know it's it's very topical for now for you know you know americanization melting pot all those words you want to say it's got a lot of great history in there as well so we got you know de niro's got family from campo basso and molise and then there's ian mcallen (laughs) <laughs> great great molis molisani i guess you would say right yeah <laughs> congrats yeah <laughs> congrats on the great book um, you know which is right over your left shoulder there go yeah. so if you're listening go get red sauce there it is with that <laughs> iconic chef right i you know i do love that chef yeah that was um what i you know uh when you're before you've written a book you know they they always tell you that you know you have no control over your your cover, mm-hmm. your the press is going to cover all that, and they'll they'll dictate to you what you're going to have on there. But it was it was great to have that experience where I um, they asked for some suggestions. I sent them a bunch of book covers. They came back with four, and they said choose. And I was like torn between uh, the little chef that we have back here and this other one that was just like a little bit more modern looking. But uh, this is a, a book about retro things, and yeah. the little chef is a great little icon, and he's been my partner this whole time everywhere i go uh a little a little chef with me so exactly it's like now you can't picture the book without that cover right exactly exactly well i want to wish you continued great luck with all of your writing all of your different pursuits i know we just you know it's just the tip of the iceberg that you're such a creative person and you know thanks again for for talking to me and talking to us about this is a lot of fun thank you very much for having me have a great day thank you yeah all right pleasure has been to speak today to Ian McAllen. Continue good luck with his writing and I'm so looking forward to continuing to follow his career and his important work. Thank you for listening to episode 154 with Ian McAllen. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will P01. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube, watch and subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast channel. Please subscribe to both my YouTube channel and my podcast while you're checking out this episode. Sign up now for the Chills of Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. 
my last name being spelled R-I-E-H-L. Again, patreon.com backslash chills will podcast Peter Real. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look at an often ignored art form. I want to thank this week's new member of the Patreon Club, and that is Claudia Monpere, who happened to be my first guest. The intro song for the Chills of the World podcast is Wind Down Instrumental Version, and the other song played on this episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 155 with Robert Jones Jr., the New York Times bestselling author of The Prophets and finalist for the 2021 National Book Award for Fiction. He has written for numerous publications, including the New York Times, Essence, and the Paris Review, and he is a creator and curator of the social justice, social media community, Son of Baldwin. This episode will air on December 6th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Ian McAllen, whose works, like Red Sauce, How Italian Food Became American, give you chills at will. (laughs) 